Okay, folks. All right, so we're in our third lesson, Hosea chapter 1, verse 1. We uh, just, uh, we said we sort of stuck our toe in the water of Hosea last week uh, with just this very first verse. We just simply looked at Hosea the prophet or Hosea the man, uh, who he he was, uh, just some features about his his life, uh, his times, so the times in which Hosea ministered. So we kind of went through a, a brief survey of Old Testament history, particularly looking at uh, the time of the major prophets and the minor prophets, the, the, the time of the, when the kingdom of Israel was divided into the ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south, and um, uh, mentioning that Hosea was sort of taking the prophetic baton from Amos. And so Amos came on the scene, was preaching judgment, uh, to particularly to the ten tribes in the north, and then Hosea sort of came behind that chronologically, even though we have Hosea at the front end uh, when it comes to these minor prophets, or what we refer to, or even the Jews refer to as the Twelve, Hosea isn't chronologically first, but I guess you'd say thematically first. I think it's interesting that his, his prophecies are, are the first of that uh, collection, and just the emphasis there on God's faithfulness and his, his uh, kindness and love towards us. So we looked at his times. Uh, we also said it's a, it was a very prosperous time. The early part of that century when Hosea ministered was Israel externally doing well. They had taken back some territory. They had expanded their borders. Um, so they were fat, man. They were, they were living it up, uh, times of, of peace with some squabbles here and there. But uh, we just said that sometimes that, those times of prosperity don't always lead to the most the best quality of worship, right? And we get, we get lazy. Uh, that prosperity often leads to a self-reliance, and uh, we turn to, to idols. That's exactly what the, the tribes did. And so these prophets came bringing a message that God was going to, he took that very seriously and was going to bring judgment and uh, calling them to repentance. So we talked about his times in which he ministered and then briefly about the message which the the underlying, the big theme of Hosea is the love of God. It's, it's his covenant love towards us, and we'll even look at that some this morning. So we're going to dive in. If, if last week was sticking your toe in the water, we're, going, we're diving in because we're going to get through chapter 1 today, um, work our way all the way through that chapter. So let me just begin by reading the chapter for us into the first verse of chapter, one, or chapter 2. The word of the Lord, which came to Hosea, the son of Biri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer and the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son, And the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. On that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Rahamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel, that I would ever forgive them. But I will have compassion on the house of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. 
And when she had weaned Lo Rahamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it will be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And then just verse 1, chapter 2, Say to your brothers, Ami, and to your sisters, Rahamah. Now, as we get going, it's important for us to, for us to know that in the prophets we have uh, these cycles, this uh, sort of a cycle of, of prophecy, a prophecy of coming judgment along with warnings that the people needed to repent, and then the hope that if they would repent, then the Lord would relent uh, and either delay or turn around because of their coming to Him for, for mercy. And so we see this. We see this cycle repeated in the book of, of Hosea. Uh, in fact, by the time we get to chapter 14, you might even be a little bit weary of that, of, of just this, this cycle going on and on and on. Uh, the, but the idea that we have to, I think, grasp is that, and we see this, it's, it's illustrated for us in, in a lot of Old Testament passages, but it's even more condensed and more clear to us in the New Testament. And it's this idea that the good that we have to understand the bad news before we're ready to receive the good news, right? If we're going to if we're going to truly grasp the good news of the gospel, then we have to first comprehend the bad news. And so, when we get to the New Testament, we find passages like in we'll just say the book the the book that we just finished up. So Shane, Shane preached a, a series through the book of Romans, and pretty much Romans chapter one verse one all the way through Romans chapter 3, verse 20, we get the bad news. I mean, this is exactly the way that Paul lays out the, the, the letter, the epistle to the Romans. We get to verse 19 of chapter 3, and Romans, and Paul writes, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And so he just pulls it all together. He's talked about the Gentiles. He's talked about the Jews. And at this point, he just says that all men are accountable to God. All of them have strayed. All of them have missed the mark. All of them have fallen short of the glory of God. And then beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, and really through the end of the book, we have the good news. Right? So you've got to have the, the bad news first. We see this same, same thing illustrated for us. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, the, those first several verses of Ephesians 2 talk about us being uh, once dead in our trespasses and sins. And then we get to that glorious verse, verse 4, and we see that transition where Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised, up, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. We see it in the epistle to Titus. Again, bad news, Titus 3.3, 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. 
Verse 4, the good news. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So this is, this is a regular pattern in salvation history of how God deals with sinners. And in Hosea, we see these cycles really as clear as anywhere else, particularly in, in the Old Testament. We see the sin of Israel. We see the indictment uh, against them. We see their, their, their wickedness. Uh, we see the judgment that is coming, and there seems to be at times, and we'll see this even today, it's like you read one verse and you think, it's over. It, it, it's, I mean, we might as well, that, that has to be the last verse of that book because that, ber- that verse is so dark, that verse is so emphatic, that verse is, is so po- pointed when it comes to exposing the harlotry and the idolatry of Israel and the judgment that they deserve that you think it's, a, it's the end, Right? And then you read the very next verse, and you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> there's hope. There's light. So we see this. We see their wickedness, judgment's coming. There seems to be no way out, but then comes a wave of grace and mercy that is honestly, it's, it's difficult to comprehend. It's just, it's, it, it, and again, the, the danger here is to read about the things that Israel was doing, and, and, and that in our own hearts we're saying, why, God, are you giving them another opportunity? Why are you doing this? And then we think, wait a minute, right? That's me. That's me. I mean, we ought to be, again, it, it almost ought to be a cycle in our lives, right? I mean, we sin, but then we are gripped by the seriousness of those things, and we know what we deserve, and we don't, we should get to the, the brink of that, right? The edge of just like, there's no hope, and then the gospel comes bursting forth. Now, I didn't mention last, this last week, but the book of Hosea, just to kind of keep in your minds, is divided mainly into two parts. So just think of the book as sort of split. You've got chapters 1 to chapter 3, which are illustrative. It's, it, it, it's, it's based indirectly on the love of the prophet. So the first three chapters are really dealing a lot with Hosea uh, personally. It's sort of his personal tragedy in his own life and and the fact that he had a love for his wife that was, that was not, uh, it was unreciprocated. Uh, and then he just serves sort of as an emblem, right, as a, as, a, as, a simp, as a symbol to sort of then point to this message that's coming in chapters 4 to 14, which deal with the national transgression of mainly Israel and her spiritual adultery, and God's promise to deal with the sin in Israel, but to also bring about a restoration, a reconciliation that is based directly upon His love, which is also unreturned and one-sided. And so you'll see we're going to talk more in the next couple of weeks about what Hosea is called to do and his, what's going on in his own personal life. But again, those things just become an illustration of, of this, this uh, larger uh, and broader message. So we've already unpacked verse 1, chapter 1, so let's pick up in verse 2. And as we do that, let me just, let me just give you a quick outline here just to kind of keep us on the rails. Uh, there, there, we're going to look at three different things. We're going to look at his initial, Hosea's initial commissioning, and then we're going to look at this uh, prophetic illustration of coming judgment. And we see that sort of via the three children that are born. 
uh, from Hosea and Gomer. And then the third thing will be the future restoration of a, I think what he describes here is a unified nation. So first of all, the initial commissioning of Hosea. Hosea's commissioning to marry Gomer. You'll see it there in verse 2. It says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, uh, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry and having, have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. So he says here, you know, when, when the Lord first spoke through him, literally it's, it's the, the beginning of the word of the Lord through Hosea. So this is the first oracle, if you will, uh, among many oracles. You must say this is the first prophetic installment. Um, but it also anticipates a statement that's going to be coming in a couple of chapters. In chapter 3, if you look just over at chapter 3 real quick, verse 1, it says, then, he says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband. And we'll get into the, to those, to that, that, that uh, section. So I think it just sort of bridges. It's sort of, this is what the Lord told Hosea to do. And then he's going to come later after uh, his wife has been, um, been unfaithful to him. And it's, this is, then the Lord said. So it's just a sort of, the Lord is coming back to him, giving him further instruction. So we have... We have this initial word from the Lord, and we have really two in this verse, just two quick imperatives. And the one is go, which is just means get going uh, or get, get moving, and then, and then take a wife. So that's the, that's the simple, that's the boiled down version. You need to go and take a wife, but not just any wife, right? What does he say? A wife of harlotry. Any other translation? Anybody else have anything else? What? Whoredom, what else? Anybody else? What's that? Prostitution, okay. So uh, the, the only debate here really, well, there's three. One, because of this issue of the Lord asking, home, uh, asking Homer. You can put them together. You put Hosea and Gomer together, you get Homer, just in case you're wondering. Uh, I'm going to blame everything like that this morning on the men's conference, right? Sleep deprivation at the men's conference. So, um, the, the, one group of people just simply say, because of what the Lord commanded Hosea to do, this has to be allegorical. You, you, in other words, there's not, even, there's, not really, there's not a literal marriage that even takes place here. Okay, we've talked about um, our concerns about allegorical interpretation and some other forms that just, just refuse to look at the Scriptures at face value. There's really nothing in the text anywhere, that in this text or in any other text in Scripture, that talks about this text that would make us believe that this wasn't an actual marriage. So the next question is just, did the Lord ask Hosea to marry a woman who was already a prostitute or a woman that was not yet doing that but married her and then that was something... So the scriptures, you might, you, you might hear this term proleptically. It just means that you're speaking about something in the present as if it's already happened, but it's actually something in the future. For example, in Romans, where it talks about us being justified and then glorified, in Romans 8, and we, and we use this term prolect, proleptically to, to say, Paul's using that past tense form, we have been glorified, even though none of us have been glorified yet. And, our, and, and the way we unpack that is to say that it's, 
it's so certain that we are going to be glorified that Paul could talk about our future glorification in the past tense. So when you have this command for, for Hosea to do this, some people would say that he's actually not being commanded to go and marry an existing harlot, someone that's practicing harlotry, but someone who will in the future end up doing that when, once they're married. Okay, uh, MacArthur takes that view. For those of you who have MacArthur's study Bible, I think he kind of goes that direction. Um, it's, it's, it's split down the middle. I mean, there's a, there's a good list of good and godly men over here. There's a good, a, a good list, you know, pretty decent list of good and godly men on the other side. I lean towards just, it's, it's hard to get around the straightforward grammar. It's, it's just hard to get around the fact that this is what I want you to do. And he goes and does it. And so I would lean on that side of just saying this was someone that was a known prostitute, not somebody that became one later. So I'm going to have to, I have to think. I can't think of any moral uh, implications of why that would not be permissible. And then part of me just says, the Lord can. <laughs> the Lord says, go do something. He has pro- a lot of the prophets to do some very unusual things, right? And in most of those cases, it was for illustrative purposes, right? To illustrate a point to the people. You have a comment? Right, so that's part of the debate because what MacArthur says in his notes is essentially that they did not commit that until after they were taken as a people. So the Lord called them out of Egypt, made him his people, and then yes, they did commit harlotry, but they didn't commit harlotry in a sense before that. But, you know, I would go to the... When I think of them, the people being formed together, I think of Mount Sinai. I mean, he delivered them out of Egypt, but they were sort of constituted as a nation at Mount Sinai. But what was going on when Moses was on the mountain? <laughs> right? The, they're worshiping the golden calf. So I'm just saying there, there are, there's good arguments on both sides. Uh, but again, I just... To me, if you just go with what the text says, it's, I don't know that you have to do a lot of explaining. We certainly don't have to apologize for God. I mean, that's not what this is about. And a lot of guys, I think, come up with their rationale because they're, they're, they're embarrassed, not by this passage alone, but by a lot of passages in Scripture. They feel like they're always having to cover for God and say, well, you know, God doesn't really do that or he didn't really say this. So let's just go with a straightforward for now. Um, that that's what Hosea is being called to do, is to marry a known prostitute. Now, he says, go take to yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry. So the question is, why must Hosea do this? And the verse tells us why. He says there at the end, for the land, which is really, again, it's not the, it's not the ground, right? When he says the land, it's just a, it's a summary of all the people. So the people have done what? They have committed flagrant harlotry. L- literally, it's, it's the, the harlotry of harlotries. So they're not just prostituting. They're doing this wholesale continually. In other words, this, this is something that has characterized, if you will, their whole existence with the Lord. So you could go all the way back, if you wanted to, to Exodus 19. <laughs> And twenty, and you would see that from the very beginning, this was a problem. Even though back then, again, the nation was just being formed. I mean, it'd be a long time before the nation divided, and yet this has still been a pattern in the life of 
of Israel. And the implication of all this is that they are forsaking the Lord. They are, they are leaving the Lord. They are going away from the Lord. Now, we've got this term harlotry. And if you're one of those people that likes to write in your Bible and, and, and underline and circle things and color, and some of you have, I mean, like, you know, you open up your jacket and you've got a pocket protector and five different colors. I've, you know, I've, I've met a couple of you. Um, I'm, I'm kind of like that. If you've seen my Bible, my wife would say, why don't you just highlight the parts that you don't want to remember? Because there'd be, it'd be easier that way. So, because it's like, you know, you, you highlight so much, it's like, what's the point, you know? Um, but we have this term harlotry, and that's a term we're going we're gonna to see it a bunch. Um, it's, it's, it's in this verse multiple times, and then it's going to be used 18 other times throughout uh, the book of Hosea. So that's going to be one of your you know, ideas or th- terms, um, one of those themes you're going to need to pay attention to as we go through. We find other concentrations, concentrations of that term where it's used to describe Israel or Judah and their relationship with the Lord, uh, you could, if you wanted to jot down Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23, are, are some other uh, two, two chapters in particular that really emphasize this, this idea. So this, really, this term really captures the history of the spiritual prostitution of God's chosen people. And to signify that, the prophet that God sends to them is one that is going to marry a prostitute and is going to have children of prostitution. Now, there's another word group here, word family, that is related to this, which is about dealing treacherously. It's, it's, this, uh, it's also brought up in Malachi with the priests in, 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 the, uh, in the context of, of, of marriage. Uh, it's usually dealing with a marital relationship. We'll find this again in Hosea chapter 5 and in Hosea chapter 6. But here's the point. When the Bible says that you've done something and done it treacherously, what it's emphasizing is that you've done it with a high hand. This is not something that you just sort of slipped into. This is not something that just kind of crept up on you. This is something that you had abundant light. Okay, You had abundant truth. You should have known better than to do this thing, and yet you did it anyway. So when you're doing these things, this is harlotry of harlotries. This is treacherous conduct, treacherous behavior. Sin with a high hand. And again, all this is just evidence that they were not following after the Lord. So we have this initial commissioning of Hosea, and then we have the prophetic illustration of coming judgment in verses 3 to 9. So uh, we have these three, three children that are born of this marriage which prophetically illustrate the coming judgments that are going to come upon Israel. Verse 3, So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. So Hosea, I mean, just it goes from the Lord spoke to Hosea and said, do this. And it says, then he went (laughs) and took, right? The command was go and take. And then the next verse says, and he went and took. And I just, just that alone, folks, I just thought, boy, I wish I was like that. I wish that when the Lord said, Joel, do this, that it was just like, do it and do it, you know? But that's, that's, what you, that's the sense that you get here, that this is, 
that Hosea is a man who obeys the Lord and his obedience is instantaneous and complete. The Lord says, do it. I mean, imagine the questions that would go through your mind if you were asked to do that. Imagine the struggle of doing that. And the text doesn't give us that. I mean, we can imagine, right? I mean, we can think about what we would be thinking about if the Lord said to do that. But the text doesn't put the emphasis on that. The text puts the emphasis on that whatever those concerns might have been, they didn't stop Hosea, right? He was faithful to the Lord enough that even something this difficult. I mean, I think about the pe- some people that we counsel in our counseling ministry where you have a, a, a believing spouse married to an unbeliever and the difficulties and the challenges of that. But you're going into this knowing at least in part, what's, what's coming. But he was faithful, and he wanted to obey, and he did. So there is a marriage, and then there is a pregnancy, and a firstborn son. And we have the arrival, the naming, and prophetic significance of this first child in verse 4. It says, and the, Lord, the Lord said to him, Name him Jezreel for yet a little while, and I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, and on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the, vel- in the valley of Jezreel. So we have this first son, this first child. Um, it's it's actually a word play uh, in the in the um, you might say in the Hebrew because we have Yisrael that would be Israel, and then you would pronounce this in Hebrew, the name for this firstborn, as Yisrael. So just, just speaking that, right? Just saying, you're going to have a son, and his name's going to be, and for that name, to, as you're saying it, to sound so much like Israel, right? So there's that. These are sort of sound-alikes. And if you, if you made this proper noun into a verb, it would mean God will sow. So it's as if he said, it's like the, it's the idea of God sowing or God uh, casting like seed or we even use the term dispersing, right? And we use this to talk about the dispersion, right? When, when Israel, those ten northern tribes were taken into captivity by Assyria and then Babylon came, did this, uh, took those away from the, uh, the south in Judah, and then he says, for yet a little while, which really is just a phrase that speaks of the imminency of what's about to happen. That is to say, you might think it won't come, but judgment is coming and sooner than you think. For, it's like so he's saying, this, you know, for yet in a little while, it's that kind of idea of it's coming, right? So you might be prosperous, you might be experiencing those outward blessings in your life, everything in your world seems to be going great. You're slowly, your reliance and your trust is, is, is no longer grounded in God and His character and His faithfulness and His promises. You begin to trust and to rely on your own wisdom and your own strength to deliver you. And so that is going on and everything seems like there's no consequences, right? Because you're, you're living this way and one of the reasons why you haven't maybe even been alert to what's going on in your own heart is because you haven't experienced those pressures, those consequences coming from, from outside. But it will come, and it will come sooner than you think. And then he says, and I will punish, or literally, it's I will visit. Uh, so this idea of God visiting them, that's, that's, that's a, neutral, it's a neutral idea. 
it all has to do with the purpose in which God's visiting. Okay, so the, the, the idea is that God's going to visit them, and in certain contexts in the Old Testament, it's God's going to visit them with blessing. Uh, in other contexts, and it's clear that in this context, it's not a good visit, right? It's, it's, it's a bad visit. So he says, I will, I will visit them, I will punish the house of Jehu for the bloodshed of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. So this, this, this house is a dynasty. This is about leaders producing a dynasty. So God is going to judge this dynasty and ultimately cut it off from pro- proliferating more leaders and rulers within that. And so you have Jehu and Israel here linked together in this, in this context. And these are also connected to a location, which we have there in verse 5. It says, on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So you may remember, you can go back and read this. In 2 Kings chapters 9 and 10 talks about Jehu. He was one of those who was very zealous to deal with the prophets of, of Baal, but, but he was essentially a, 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 mass, a massacre man. He was, uh, a lot of blood was shed, and God... Uh, actually holds him accountable for that. And so the name Jezreel sort of recalls Jehu's blood guilt that's mentioned in 2 Kings, but at the same time anticipates the end of his dynasty, which is represented in the person of Jeroboam II. So he's just sort of pulling these different things that are going on. Jeroboam, one of the leaders in Israel, this past event in Uh, going on with Jehu, and again, another reminder that what was done in the past, God has not forgotten. (laughs) And if if we have sinned, even though we don't experience the immediate consequence of that, in this case, it's just a reminder that, you know what, a crop is coming, right? And God would hold them accountable for all of these things as a nation, and in this case, nation, but even down to that individual and personal level. And then he just simply says that he'll break the bow of Israel. So God is going to, that's just, a, I think, um, a phrase to describe their military capabilities. So he's going to essentially destroy those capabilities so that the, when they, they will not be able to deliver themselves from this situation. When this judgment comes, Israel will not have the fortitude. They will not have the know-how. They will not have the power. They will not have the savvy to get out of this situation. Okay, so again, you're reading this and you're like, it's a done, it's a done deal, right? This thing is coming. So that's, that's the first child. Then we have the arrival and the naming and prophetic significance of a second child. Verse 6 says, Then she conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Name her Lo-Rahamah, for I will no longer have compassion on the house of Israel. <laughs> that I would ever forgive them. <laughs> Can I just read that? It sounds harsh, doesn't it? It's like, he will not forgive them, right? So, I mean, this, this language, folks, it, this is about as intense as you can get, okay? Lo rahamah, this is the Hebrew word with the, uh, uh, the, with the objective negation on it. So, it's, it's, you're, you might have a a little thing in your column that actually, or in some of your translations, it may even actually not give you the proper name. It may actually give you just the translation, but it's essentially no mercy, right? Which is why Matt reminded everyone at the beginning of class that I was going to show everyone no mercy today. 
right? And I said, literally, because that's, this, this is what we're, we're looking at. We're looking at this, this daughter that is born, and the name that Hosea is to give this little girl is a name that means no mercy. No mercy. No more pity. No more compassion. So, God is going to essentially withhold one of His chief attributes of grace, His compassion. Now, we've looked at, I mean, I'm thinking back, we did a series in Nahum, we did a series in Jonah, uh, even back when we were in Ecclesiastes, it just seems like almost every series that we go through that we end up coming back to Exodus 34, 6. <laughs> that, that verse and the content that is there is repeated so many times in the Old Testament and even mentioned in the New Testament. But uh, Exodus 34, 6, this is when uh, the glory of the Lord, uh, where Moses says, show me your glory, and the Lord speaks to Moses. But it says this in verse 6, and you'll recognize this verse. Exodus 34, 6, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed... So this is the glory. This is interesting because the glory is actually a spoken word. Moses says, show me, and God says, I'll tell you. This is my glory. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And at the front of that is compassion. And that's the word we have in Hosea. Except there, it's negated. No compassion. We have Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. So we have this, the compassion of God, and actually the root of this word is related to the word for a mother's womb. So it's, it's this, you might say it's a motherly kind of tender, loving, caring compassion. That is the compassion that God shows to His people, to us, all the time. But what does it say this daughter represents? Well, she represents no mercy. Now, this also is the word used over in Lamentations. Some of you are familiar with this as well. Lamentations 3.22 says, The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for His compassions, that's our term, Never fail. Okay, so we, it's like I'm, I'm thinking of what he's saying in Hosea, but I, in my mind I'm thinking about these passages that keep talking about the compassion of God as if it just keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming and it never fails and it never ceases. And then I go, and I, no compassion. So it's like just, it's like your, your mind, you're just like, how, how, do you, how does it all fit together? Well, it's going to come together for us. Which... By the way, in the, in the Lamentations, that was Jeremiah's context. It was regarding the time after God would, would bring his judgment on Judah. But in Hosea, there is a ceasing of those mercies. So you can see these characteristics of God. You see that God's heart is, is truly compassionate and merciful. There's no denying that because it's, just, it's all over the Old Testament, New Testament. We serve a compassionate God. We serve a merciful God. But in Hosea, you have this daughter of prostitution whose very name says there's no pity. 
And then it says, and the Lord will never forgive them. The ESV, some of you may have that translation, says, For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. So that's it, right? We're done. Signed, sealed, delivered. It's over. No mercy. No forgiveness ever. Cut off. Never to be delivered again. Right? Well, we know that based on the history that, that Israel's captivity took place when God planned it to, to take place, purposed it to take place. It, was, it happened on, on his calendar and his timing. Uh, we looked at that last time, as I mentioned, in 721 and 722 B.C. when the Assyrians invaded. That did come to pass. However, God would grant a reprieve for the southern kingdom of Judah... Uh, this reprieve of about 136 years, because if you'll remember, we looked at those three stages of captivity for the Babylonian invasion, and it wasn't until 586 B.C. that the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem. And so what we have here is this interesting little, you might see it as sort of an interlude in verse 7, because he mentions Judah, even though, again, the, the primary target audience of this of of these prophecies is Israel, but yet he says here in verse 7, but I will have compassion on the house of Judah or on the dynasty of Judah and deliver them by the Lord their God and will not deliver them by bow, sword, battle, horses, or horsemen. Now, why would that be important? Well, that would be important because they had a history of making deals with other groups of people and other nations in order to defend themselves. In fact, this is what Isaiah Specifically, like for example, Egypt, right? The the uh, su- the southern kingdom, Judah, would turn to Egypt, right, for help. Isaiah had to confront that, and you can read about that over at Isaiah thirty three. He says this. He says, "Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots, because they are they are many and in horsemen, because they are very strong. But they do not look to the holy one of Israel nor seek the Lord." Yet he also is wise and will bring disaster and does not retract his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of the workers of iniquity. Now the Egyptians Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand, and he who helps will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and all of them will come to an end together." So we have, if you will, this, inter, this interjection of compassion in verse 7 about God. Basically, he's, he's saying, I'm going to deal with Israel this way, but then I am going to... There is a measure of compassion that I'm going to show Judah. And we, I say we could define that as this season between when the northern kingdoms fell to the time when the southern kingdom fell, this period of 136 years, God showed his compassion to them. Again, with all that came exposing their sin, calling them to repentance, warning of judgment, and all those things which they did not, did not heed. But in verses 8 and 9, we return to, back to Hosea's family, this dis, sort of dysfunctional family of Hosea. We have this third child of harlotry. The arrival, naming, and prophetic significance of this 
third child, it says in verse 8, When she had weaned Lo-Rahamah, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, Name him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Again, this name is catastrophic in its implications. Uh, it's, again, that the word for people with the negation, so it's no people, which seems to negate what the Lord had established at the outset when he called that people to himself and pulled them out of Egypt. And so we have, going back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, you remember this, it says, The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. Okay, this is when they were in bondage in Egypt. So this is even before they were delivered from uh, from that uh, and from Pharaoh says, so he already at that point is referring to them as my people. And he says, and I have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I'm aware of their sufferings. Over in Exodus seven sixteen, it says, you speaking to you, Moses, he says, you Moses shall say to him, and he's speaking to Pharaoh, saying, you're going to go to Pharaoh and say, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let who? My people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness, but behold, you have not listened until now. <clears throat> you go on to Exodus 19, where Israel was camped in front of Mount Sinai. It says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7, very similar, talks about the Lord loving His people uh, and keeping His oath which He swore to their forefathers bringing them up, delivering them, redeeming them from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he says in verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and His loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love Him and keep His commandments. So the Lord says to Hosea, When the second boy comes, name him Lo-Ami, and then again, for, this is the term right after that. For, you can translate that as since or because you, the peop, speaking of the people of Israel, the you there is plural. So he's saying, he's speaking again to the group, you are not my people, which should have absolutely knocked the wind out of them. To hear that, to hear that statement should have brought them to their knees in repentance, sadly, that doesn't happen. Not quite yet. We'll see that. And not only that, but he says, I am not your God. <laughs> Which the emphasis is on the I, and it's, it's literally, you, you could say, you could translate it. It's actually referring back to the burning bush when God says, I am Okay, it's, it's sort of playing off of that, but you could say it this way. You are not my people and I am not yours. Or, I am not your I am. Which sounds like a final divorce announcement. <laughs> 
doesn't it? It kind of just it's it's just like where where a, a, a couple gets to that point and, and they just say, "You are not my wife, and I am not your husband." I mean, it just has that that tone, and it just it's just this sort of it's it seems irrevocable. It's like you read it, and you're just like, again, that's it, right? And then we could look at the Israel's history of infidelity, and, and that certainly provides for us in undisputable grounds for this action, for God to do this. Nevertheless, we have this sort of reversal of sorts, this, you might call it whip, theological whiplash, but it's this future restoration. Oh man, I had my, you guys got to remind me to do this. See, I got all these colorful things up here with different names. I get going and I forget. Okay, this third thing, which is the future restoration of a unified nation. So we have these, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is what the names of these children, this is what this means. And you're, you're like, okay, it's over, but then we have this amazing display of sovereign grace. In fact, the change is so dramatic that in the Hebrew Bible... It's not chapter 1, verse 10, but it begins a new chapter. It's actually in the Hebrew Bible, chapter 2, verse 1. So they actually split verse, a break between 9 and 10 because it just seems like these are just different, totally, they're, they're so different. They sound so different. It's just, somebody referred to it as, as jolting literature. It's like you're going down this road of judgment and condemnation, and then it's, you get to verse 10, and it's like you have to turn around just a totally different emphasis. And he says there in verse 10, Yet, or notwithstanding, or nevertheless, the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Have you ever heard of that image before? Is that, is that familiar to you? The sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea. Ring a bell for anybody? Abrahamic covenant. Okay, so this harkens back to the covenant that God made with Abraham, which some call the granddaddy of all covenants. Right? There's so many of the other covenants that come, but that, that go back to this covenant that God made with Abraham. And so we go back to, for instance, Genesis 22, verse 17. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. So this is on Mount Moriah. This is when he was willing to sacrifice his son Isaac. Verse 17, Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Then we have here in the second half, he says and in uh, verse 10, And in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it will be said to them, You are the sons of the living God. And the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, and they will appoint for themselves one head or one leader, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. And then verse 1 of chapter 2, Say to your brothers, Ami, or my people, and to your sisters, Rahamah, or compassion. So again, we have this sort of whiplash, this amazing, God's amazing grace, this inexplicable mercy. 
Hosea says here that God will eventually multiply them and cause them to have great prosperity, that a father-son relationship will be restored. We see that in verse 10, that their spiritual adoption will be restored. And even, even though the nation was divided, and we talked about that last week, but in the future, God will unify the nation again. It's this, this, it's this idea of, of that all is one and everything is glued back together with one head, which I'll argue is what is brought up and referred to in Hosea 3.5, the greater David or the messianic king, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, God will bring all of these things together. Israel will, and this phrase, go up, is sort of a... Uh, they, it's, it's used in the Old Testament in a couple of ways. One is that, that go, like going up out of Egypt. It's, the, it's, it's used in the context of, del, of leaving, like being delivered from something. It's also used in the context of worship. For, uh, it's used that way in the Psalms a lot of, as far as ascending up, right? Going up to worship. So this is what Israel will do. Israel will go up to worship and out of her captivities. And God is going to bring all of this to pass in his Sovereign mercy in the day of Jezreel, which is like the day of the Lord in that it has both negative dimensions of judgment and dimensions of, of blessing. And in verse 11, it's, it's clearly focusing on, on the blessings there. So God pledged that they would have no mercy, but he will exercise mercy. He will reconcile his people to himself, which will lead into this a more, you might say, he'll, he'll deal with the vertical problem that the nation has with God, but then that will translate into a horizontal reconciliation. And they'll, they'll be not this dysfunctional family, but a functional family. Now, just in a, maybe a few minutes we have left, just, again, we, we don't, that's, that's, the, that's the, uh, you might call it, that's the interpretation. <laughs> that's my interpretation of what's going on. But let me just, maybe a couple you want to share. Let's think about implications. Okay? I mean, and again, we, we could go down that rabbit trail and we can start talking about the timing of this and, and how this is all going to work out prophetically. We're going to deal with some of that as we go along. But I'm thinking, when I say implications, I'm talking about the way in which you think about your daily life, the way in your motivations for doing what you do as a believer, your worldview, your perspective on life, your perspective on God, what you believe at that level, at the level of worship or at the level of idolatry in your own life, what are, what are, what are some of the implications already that you see from this? Things that think the ways that you're you need to be thinking differently about life in light of what we just went through. Ways in which you're tempted to believe believe something that's not true. Maybe things that aren't that are not true. Maybe things about yourself <laughs> where you're not agreeing with scripture and what scripture has to say about you. Or maybe on as far as God's character, some things you're tempted to think about God and believe about God that aren't true, or maybe things that are true about God and and you, again, just you're either ignoring them or you're outright rejecting and rebelling against those things. You give me an example. Uh, well, we're going to talk about, I mean, some of, this, some of this comes down to an issue of timing. So we're talking about, 
it's not as if they avoided the captivity, right? So uh, it's, it's similar to the, if you want to look back at the wilderness wanderings, there was a generation of people that, that died in the wilderness due to unbelief. God warned those things would happen. Those things played out, but that didn't necessarily mean that that, that cut them all off from those, a fulfillment of those promises. So there's a, there's a generation to which he's speaking that are going to reap the fruits of the things that they've done, but that doesn't mean that there will not be in the future an extension of mercy and forgiveness. So we'll talk about how those things go together. To the people, to the people that he's yes, to the one the ones he's that are in his time period, yes. But I would say I, I would say to the nations, but I would but we're, we'll we'll talk about this. Where does Israel play into this? I do think it's to the to the peoples, to the nations. But I still think that, as we emphasized in Romans, that the, that we have the, the focus of God's plan has not been taken off of Israel and onto the nations. The nations are blessed through. The fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, what is that? Yes, Christy. When we know what God is telling us to do, but we just really don't want to, how serious that is, uh, that struck me. And also that in times of prosperity, when things seem to be going well, that we get independent and uh, don't need God as much, which is one reason we can rejoice when trials come. Yeah, I mean, this, and this cycle, again, this cycle of, and you could it, it, it's the question is what is what drives you to self-reliance? And the one you're pointing out is sometimes prosperity does that, that seasons of prosperity tempt you to self-reliance. But on the flip side of that, don't also sometimes pressures and difficulties do that, too. So on one hand, sometimes we're guilty of prosperity leading us down that road of self-trust and idolatry and then misery, and this is how it goes, right? Then eventually we realize that we have broken cisterns, right? This is not what we thought it was going to be, and so we experience the misery of chasing after idols, right? I mean, that's, that's what happens. When we barter for another god, we experience the sorrows of that, and then behind that comes chastisement, right? And then behind that comes... God's kind rescue. But both of those things can do that. We see examples of that in the Scripture. Sometimes it is where things are great, things are going wonderful, and we don't realize that our heart's straying. At other times, God brings, us hard, God brings hardship and difficulties and dashes our expectations in a different way, and it leads us to despair and depression and anger and being anxious and afraid but all of those emotions really just revealing that we're worshiping our selfish desires. So, yeah, that, that's, that's a good one. Uh, and one. Maybe one other. Yeah. Um, I think it instructs us not to have an uh, imbalanced view of who God is. Don't, don't push so much emphasis on His grace. God is also holy, and there is a line that we can cross. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we, and again, we, we, we're, we're good about swinging from one extreme to the other. And uh, we've got to, to maintain these things. These, uh, uh, I love the way that um, uh, Todd Murray puts this. He says, these twin tr- we have to always keep in mind these twin truths, that we are as bad as the testimony of scriptures. Scripture says that we are, and God is as good and faithful as the testimony of Scripture says that He is. So he says, we are that bad. So in case you're wondering, you know, when you look at this and say, well, I, we're not, I'm not that bad. No, that, that's unbelief. You have to believe what Scripture says about you. And what Scripture says about you is you are that bad. <laughs> believe it. You have to believe that. But you also, along with that, must believe that God is that good. Because people struggle with that too, right? They embrace the, I understand, I, I'm condemned, that's wicked, I don't need to do this. They have remorse, regret, all that stuff, but they're not turning to the Lord. It's like they, they, they're not believing that God is gracious and compassionate and merciful. So both of those things, I think, we need, we need to see God in His holiness, but at the same time, we need to see God in His grace. So these, these things, again, folks, I just they're written for our instruction. The reality is you can go to church, you can go to this church, you can live in a, we might call it a truth-rich environment and have the good news preached to you perpetually, but if you do not believe, it does not profit you. You have to believe God is good and keeps His word. And you have to believe you are as bad and wicked and self-reliant as the word of God tells you that you are. And keep those things in mind. And be careful, because on one level, you could say, oh, this is what I get from that. What I learned from this is that I need to learn how to respond in love to people who do not love me back. And so we kind of jump to that implication that we need to love others. We need to be like Hosea again. And I'm saying, no, before you do that, on a deeper level, you need to realize that you're Gomer, right? You're Israel. And that when you sin, you are doing that to the Lord. So don't try to be Hosea, the faithful husband, without realizing that you are Gomer, the unfaithful spouse. So you, ha- you need to believe the testimony of God that says you are as bad as they are. And you need to believe the testimony of God that says that God will not give you up. He will, he will not give up on you because you didn't do anything to earn his love to begin with.